Oops, I must have given the wrong uh, end, end point for the message text today. I was like, I don't know, I was preaching about the Sabbath. Woo, here we go. <laughs> I feel bad enough coming up here after uh, following Christina, who apparently is on top of her stand-up comedian game this morning. Man, what a disappointment to have me up here now. <laughs> Uh, also, happy birthday, Scott. I guess that's what we're doing now is public announcement. So beware. If it's your birthday, you might, get a, you might have uh, people tell everyone and shout it out loud. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I'm, I'm imagining all the, the emails I'm going to get from people that are like, well, you told me I could tell you my deepest, darkest secrets and have no one know about it. And, oh, anyhow. That's all right. All right, we are in a series in the book of Mark, and as has been our practice over the course of these last number of months, what we want to do is uh, leave some space for those of you who have been tracking along with us and who have been reading the book of Mark on your own. Uh, We do trust that as we read the Bible, as Christina pointed out this morning, that the Word of God is powerful, and the Spirit of God working together with the Word of God uh, changes and transforms us. And so, Uh, we expect that as we read the Bible that God is going to do things in our lives, and we want to hear about that. So uh, any of those things that you are experiencing, uh, ways that things that you're learning, things that are sort of hitting you in fresh ways, uh, ways that you are being led to delight in who God is, uh, we want to hear about that. So I'm going to leave just a couple of minutes here. I will walk around with the mic. I will hold the mic. And if you uh, want to share for uh, about one minute, that'd be great. And then after a couple of these, we will get into the message text this morning. So anyone want to share? I'm surprised he gave me the mic back. Um, I was reading in Mark this week and just feeling overwhelmed at the blessing we have that at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, John proclaims the imminent good news and Jesus proclaims the imminent good news and says the time is now. And just feeling the weight of blessing that today we're not waiting for the good news like people were for so long that we're in the past tense of the good news the time has already come and the good news is just ours we just have it we don't have to wait for it and we can live with it every day yeah someone else All right, that's our, that's it for today. Thanks for sharing. Let's uh, get into the message text this morning. I know, no one wants to follow Christina. As we come to this passage, I'm going to invite you, as we do each week, to uh, join me in a word of prayer. You are my portion, Lord. 
I promised to obey your words. I have sought your face with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. I have considered my ways and have turned my steps towards your statutes. I will hasten and not delay to obey your commands. The earth is filled with your love, Yahweh. Teach me your decrees. Lord, this morning we ask that the prayer of the psalmist would be our prayer. That we would be the kinds of people who delight to look into your word, who delight to sit under your instruction, and who delight to give ourselves to living in faithful obedience in the power of your spirit to your instruction. We pray that as we look at this passage that you would teach us, that you would help us see things in here that we need to see this morning. Lord, you know exactly what each of us needs today. And so we pray that by the powerful working of your spirit that you would meet each of us in a unique and special way and that you would bring um, transformation and even revival into our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in the middle of a little mini section in the book of Mark. In chapter 2, leading up to the, into the first part of chapter 3, we see that Jesus has been in these conflicts with the religious leaders. And the first conflict was because Jesus healed a man who was paralyzed, and in the process of doing so, he forgave his sin and made the claim that he is God. And this led to a significant conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. Uh, we saw last week that Jesus calls this despised man, Levi, who is a tax collector who the Jewish people hated to be one of his disciples, and not just one of his disciples, but one of his inner circle of followers, which led Jesus to a conflict and confrontation as he ate with tax collectors and sinners, and he hung around with people like Levi, and he, in his love, moved towards those who were considered the outcast by the religious elite of the day. As we look at this passage today, we see Jesus coming into conflict because he and his disciples do not fast, at least in the way that the others thought that he should be fasting. And then, as you heard in the sermon text as a foreshadowing of next week, uh, the last two conflicts have to do with Jesus uh, on the Sabbath. And so we're going to look at both of those passages together next week. Uh, But I think it's important for us just to recognize the intensification that's taking place in this part of the book of Mark where Jesus, in these conflicts with these religious leaders, the pressure and the opposition that is against him is mounting. And you can see it, if you're a careful reader, you'll notice that the first time Jesus has this conflict, it's the, the religious leaders, they say something in their heart. They think to themselves, who does this guy think he is claiming to forgive sin? And they don't even verbalize it. Jesus beats them to it and says, "How you know? Like, what are you even talking about? I am who I say I am but they don't even get the words out of their mouth. They simply think in their heart. And then the next three are them verbally accusing Jesus, coming to him, asking him these questions. Hey, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why do you uh, do what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Why, why don't your, you and your disciples fast? And so it moves from them thinking in their hearts to them speaking out loud, and then we're going to see next week, it ends with them plotting to kill Jesus. And so there's this picture of the intensity of the opposition that is mounting against Jesus. And we are, in this particular passage, finding ourselves right in the midst of the conflict that Jesus is experiencing. My guess is that for those of us who are here today, 
the subject of fasting might feel somewhat irrelevant to us. Part of that is because we live in a culture where fasting or choosing not to partake of something that you could partake of, choosing, you know, having a desire and choosing not to have that desire met is somewhat unthinkable, right? Uh, we live in a culture where if, if you want it, if you desire it, if you have the means to get it, you should just go ahead and do it. If it makes you happy, you ought to be able to pursue and do whatever you want, right? And we live in the midst of, of not just a culture, but an economy that lives on this idea, right? We live in a consumer economy. We are consumers, and corporations and companies spend billions of dollars every single year convincing us that we need something that we didn't know existed, and the way that we can have that need met is by their product or service, which we also didn't know existed until right now, right? So this is just the environment we live in where we're fasting or choosing to deny yourself anything is kind of viewed as a form of like self-harm, right? And, and it's just something, just culturally, this is just an odd thing. We don't talk about this except, you know, in the world of like... Um, Sometimes in the world of dieting, like intermittent fasting, there's some things like that. But apart from that, there's not really any uh, talk of fasting in our particular cultural environment. And so this idea of fasting is just radically countercultural. And, you know, how many, how many of you have been to a church, don't raise your hands, where, where there's been like a sermon series or even like one dedicated sermon at all talking about fasting and the practice of fasting and why we would fast? You know, as, as pastors are like planning out the church calendar, uh, sermon series on fasting are like not on the top of the list of things that it's like, hey, this will be relevant and engaging. We should talk about fasting, right? It's kind of a downer. And so we just don't talk about this very much, but we're going to talk about it here today. And uh, so I just want to invite you to turn with me if you have not already turned to the book of Mark chapter 2. And I just want to explore uh, some of the things that this passage is showing us. So the first thing I want to draw your attention to this morning, the first thing we see in this passage is we see the unseriousness of Jesus and his disciples. And of course, I put unserious in quotation marks because that's the accusation that is brought against them. Now, to understand why Jesus and his disciples not fasting was considered a kind of spiritual or religious unseriousness, we have to understand something of the role that fasting played in the life of God's people, because it was actually kind of a big deal at the time of Jesus's ministry. So all the way back in the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, there's only one place where fasting is explicitly commanded, and that's in Leviticus chapter 16 as a part of the celebration for the Day of Atonement. So the people would fast as a way of preparing for the salvation and the deliverance and the forgiveness of sins that God was going to provide the next day on the Day of Atonement. So that's the only time in the entire Torah where fasting is explicitly commanded. But of course, over the course of time, there became other fasts that became a part of Jewish culture and practice. And so if you read some of the, uh, the prophets that were in ministry after the exile, after the people came back to the land, they talk about like five other fasts that God's people participated in. And so that brings it to six fasts that the people did on a regular annual basis. So there was on average once every two months, there would be this, uh, this period of fasting that God's people would go through. Now, if that, as if that period of six fasts was not enough, the Pharisees who 
as we know, are one of the most religiously conservative groups in the entire New Testament, they fasted two times per week in addition to all the fasting that was required or that was built into Jewish custom and culture at the time. So they, they fasted on Monday and Thursday every single week from sunup to sundown. So fasting was this huge part of the life of God's people in the first century. And there was a couple different main purposes or reasons why you would fast. Uh, the main ones were fasting was an act of sorrow and lament and grief over your sin. That's why you would fast, to express your grief and your sorrow and your lament over your sin and your brokenness. But then coupled with that, the other purpose of it, fasting was a way not just of confessing that sin, but also turning to God. It was a way of repentance. And so this is what fasting was in the first century, was a way of expressing your sorrow over your sin and repenting and turning from that sin. And this is why the Pharisees were so upset with Jesus. This is what they expected him and his disciples to do, was to participate in these regular fasting periods up to and including the, you know, bi-weekly fasting that the Pharisees themselves were doing. And that's why they are upset with Jesus. And, you know, the Pharisees, they get a bad rap uh, in many cases uh, for very good reasons, right? The New Testament does not talk about them in, you know, glowing, wonderful terms. Uh, But where there are things we should affirm in the Pharisees, we ought to just give them credit. And this is one of those places, okay? Their desire... The Pharisees' desire was not to, they were not trying to earn their salvation through these fasts and through their obedience to the Torah. They were not at all trying to earn their salvation, saying, you know, if I can just muster up enough good works, God has to save me. No, they understood they were trying to live in faithfulness to God and his commandments. And they wanted the rest of the people to live in faithfulness to God and his instruction. And so their desire behind wanting the people to fast was a good fast, was a good desire, rather. They knew from reading the Hebrew Bible that it was the idolatry and the sin of the people that led them into exile. That was God's judgment and God's discipline on his people for them. uh, Their sin and their idolatry was he carried them off into exile. And they also knew that... God promised that when they would turn from that sin, when they would turn to him and they would be faithful to the covenant, then God would restore them. And so they knew that sin was what led you into exile and repentance is what led you out of exile. And that's why they cared so deeply about this. Because at the time of Jesus's ministry, even though the nation of Israel is living in the land of Israel, they are still living in a functional exile under the occupation of the Roman government. And so even among the Jewish people at the time, there was the sense that, that the, you know, our exile technically ended when we were let out of Babylon, but we're still living in exile. And so they viewed the Roman occupation as another, sort of just another chapter in their long exile that they've been in. And so for this reason, the Pharisees, they expected Jesus and his disciples to be fasting. And it had been, this fasting had become one of the key markers of a person's faithfulness to God and faithfulness to the covenant. And so the religious leaders are saying, you know, if this guy really did care about the kingdom of God, if he really did care about the restoration of the nation of Israel, him and his disciples would be fasting. And yet we get the picture here that Jesus and his disciples are not fasting, or at least not fasting the way that they were expected to be fasting in the first century by those particular people. 
And Jesus, his response to this accusation that's brought against him and his disciples, that they are, you know, religiously, spiritually unserious because they're not fasting enough, you know, they're not, they're not you know, doing it hard enough. His response tells us exactly why him and his disciples are not fasting. So verse 19, Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? So he gives this image, this picture of a wedding. And so we get this picture here of the unseriousness of Jesus and his disciples, this accusation that's brought against them. But then Jesus in his response, by giving us the picture of the wedding, he's telling us the inappropriateness of fasting in his presence. Right? The inappropriateness, that it just doesn't make any sense to fast in the presence of Jesus, to fast in the presence of the bridegroom. Now, this, this image that Jesus uses here of the, of the wedding feast and the bridegroom, uh, who we just call the groom today, this makes total sense to us, doesn't it? You know, I've, I've known a lot of people who have fasted before a wedding, or who, who have dieted, rather. You know, dieting is a kind of fasting. But I know a lot of people that have dieted before a wedding because, you know, there's the clothes you want to fit into and you want to be remembered in the pictures, looking your best. And so, you know, we go through a lot of effort uh, to fit into certain clothes and to look our best and to be remembered in the pictures. We go through so much effort to diet before weddings. I've known so many people who have dieted before a wedding. I've never yet met a person who's dieted at a wedding, (laughs) right? Because it's totally inappropriate. You... When you get to a wedding, you get to that day and you're like, this is it. I can finally let loose. You know, I can unbuckle my belt and I can enjoy good food and good drink and I can dance and I can celebrate. And that's the time to celebrate and to enjoy. It makes no sense. It's inappropriate to fast at a wedding. And this is especially true in the Jewish world where their weddings were not like, you know, six-hour events if you include the um, reception like ours. In, in Jewish culture, weddings lasted a week, seven full days. These were, these were not like family events where it's like, hey, you and your immediate family. These were village community events where like everything shut down and people ate and drank and danced and celebrated for seven days. <laughs> they went to bed and they got up the next day and they did it all over again. And they went to bed and they got up the next day and did it all over again. So this is a, a significant uh, celebration moment And Jesus is just the obvious point he's making is that it is completely and entirely inappropriate to fast at a time like this. Now there's another layer to what we see here. Because Jesus here just sort of casually calls himself the bridegroom. And as you might expect, this is drawing on some imagery from the Hebrew Bible. It's drawing on some imagery from what we call the Old Testament. And so listen, I want to just read you, I think Jeremiah, the the book of Jeremiah is the place where we see this language uh, where Jesus is drawing from. Just listen, I'm going to read from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 34. I I would love to read this entire paragraph, but I'm not going to for time's sake, as well as because uh, it's a very graphic, very gory passage. Actually, it's talking about how the people have, uh, have abandoned God, they have forsaken the covenant, and they have set up idols in the very place, in the very temple where God's name dwells, and they are uh, sacrificing their children to false gods and all of this detestable, gross, awful stuff. And God promises that he's going to bring his judgment and his discipline on his people for the way that they're living. And so we read this in Jeremiah 7, chapter 34. 
God says, I will bring an end to the sound of joy and gladness and to the voice of the bride and the bridegroom in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem, for the land will become desolate. So just notice here, the symbol, the sign of God's justice, the the sign of God's discipline on his people is the absence of the bridegroom, the removal of the bridegroom. That's the symbol of God's coming uh, justice and his judgment on the people. So we see that image here, but then we also can fast forward later in the book because yes, the people have abandoned God, they've forsaken the covenant, they've broken the covenant, but then later in the book of Jeremiah, God promises he's going to make a new covenant with his people. And we see that in chapter 31, and not long after chapter 31, we get to chapter 33, and we read Jesus, uh, God rather saying through the prophet Jeremiah, saying this in Jeremiah 33 verses 10 and 11. You say about this place, it is a desolate waste without people or animals, yet in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are deserted, inhabited by neither people nor animals, there will be heard once more the sound of joy and gladness, the voice of the bride and bridegroom, and the voices of those who bring thank offerings to the house of Yahweh. So notice both sides of this. On the one hand, the absence or the removal of the bridegroom is evidence of God's coming justice on his people, his discipline. But then on the other side, the presence of the bridegroom is evidence, it's a picture, it's a sign of God's restoration and his deliverance. The presence of the bridegroom is the symbol that that God's era of new covenant salvation has finally arrived. And then Jesus here, intentionally, knowingly takes this image of the bridegroom and says, hey, I'm not just a bridegroom, I am the bridegroom. And my presence is the evidence, it's the proof that this new era of God's delivering and saving activity, this new covenant era has finally arrived. There's another layer to this. I I sort of feel like, uh, as I was looking at this passage, I, I feel a little bit like I'm in the movie Inception, if you've ever seen that, where it's like, you just, you're like, I don't even know which way is up anymore. And there's so many different layers and, and all this stuff here. But one of the other layers to this is that Jesus here is saying not only that he is the sign of this new era of God's saving deliverance and his restoration. Jesus is saying as the bridegroom, he is not just a symbol of that. He is the one who brings God's deliverance and God's restoration and God's salvation to the people. So he doesn't just sort of, he doesn't come and point somewhere else and say, hey, look, God's deliverance. Look, there it is. Go find it. No, Jesus points to himself and says, I am the bridegroom. I am the one who not only symbolizes that restoration, I am the one who brings that salvation and brings that restoration. And of course, the way Jesus did this was unexpected from what the people were uh, expecting or hoping for. And so in verse 19 to 20, Jesus says, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? It's inappropriate to fast in his presence. They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And on that day, they will fast. So there will be a time when the bridegroom is taken from them. That's language that most scholars believe is a reference to the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, where Isaiah writes this about the suffering servant. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. 
It's the same root word that's used here and also in the Greek Old Testament. And so Jesus here is bringing together all of these different images. He's saying, I am the bridegroom. I am the one who symbolizes this new era of God's saving covenant deliverance. But then he's also pointing us to the suffering servant, telling us what kind of death he's going to die, the kind of death that the suffering servant died in the book of Isaiah, where it says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people, he was punished. And so Jesus here is pointing us forward to, for the first time explicitly in the book of Mark, he's pointing us forward to what he's going to do on the cross. And he says, in the same way that the suffering servant gave up his life for the many, so I am going to give up my life as an offering, as a sin offering for you as well. So he points us forward to the cross. Now the irony of all this is that what Jesus came to accomplish through his death, right? Jesus accomplishes the restoration and the renewal that we most desperately need in his death. What Jesus came to accomplish through his death is the very thing the Pharisees have been fasting for, right? They've been fasting, awaiting this time when God would bring this new era of his deliverance. He would finally restore his people. And Jesus came and actually accomplished through his suffering and through his death what the Pharisees had been anticipating and hoping for. Except Jesus did it in an even better way because uh, much of what they were hoping for was sort of on a surface level. Much of what they were hoping for was that they would be restored to their formal political glory in the way that it was under, you know, King Solomon or King David when the kingdom was large and influential and all of this kind of stuff. And Jesus came and provided the heart-level restoration, the heart-level healing that every single one of us needs because our sin has caused us to be estranged from God in his presence. We've been estranged from God who is the source of life. We've been exiled from his presence and Jesus came to make a way for us to be able to be back in relationship with God once again. So Jesus accomplished through his death the very thing that the Pharisees have been fasting for. He is the one that the people have been hoping for and therefore it is utterly, entirely inappropriate to fast in his presence. And yet there's one more element of this text I want to draw out for us today, just by way of application. We do see Jesus telling us about the inappropriateness of fasting in his presence. But another aspect of this is also the necessity of fasting in Jesus's absence. Yeah, there's the, the inappropriateness of being in the presence of the bridegroom and fasting and mourning and lamenting. That's inappropriate. But also it's necessary that we fast in his absence. Jesus told them that there's going to be a time for fasting. Verse 20, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them and on that day, in that time, they will fast. Of course, there he's referring to his being taken away in death. Jesus then rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he's also not physically present with us either as well, (laughs) right? So, uh, you know, we are, because of the presence of the Spirit, Christ is actually and really present with us, and yet Jesus is not physically present with us in the way that his disciples were present uh, with him in the first century during his ministry. And fasting is one of the ways that we express and cultivate our longing to see him face to face. 
that's part of the purpose of fasting. You see, we fast. We ought to be the kind of people who, who fast. But the, the reason we fast is completely different. See, we don't fast in expectation for God's coming salvation like they were fasting for at the time of Jesus because Jesus has accomplished that. Jesus has accomplished the salvation and the restoration that, that we most desperately need. That has been finalized and sealed at the cross. So we don't fast in hopes that God is one day going to save us. What we fast for is we fast because we long to experience the fullness of the restoration that we've tasted. We've tasted something of God's saving and something of God's deliverance and something of God's restoration in the person of Jesus. It's been sealed for us, and yet we live in this already not yet, don't we? Where it's ours in Christ, and yet we don't fully experience all of what it means to be in his presence. We don't fully experience what it means to have every area of our life fully renewed and transformed into the image of Christ. And so we fast because we long to experience the fullness of restoration that we've tasted. We long for every single area of our life and every area of culture and every area in our world to be submitted to God's design in Jesus. And so because of that, we fast. And it's a way that we cultivate a longing and an expectation of the fullness of the restoration that God has given us to taste. And so we fast because we long for all of the areas in our lives, the brokenness and the idolatry and the sin and all of the corruption that exists inside of us. We long for that to be healed. We long for that to be renewed. And so fasting is one of the ways that we express our desire for God to change us and to make us new. We fast because we long for our bodies to be made new, for our grief and our disappointment and our fear and our anxiety and all of those things that we experience. We long for those things to be fully resolved in the presence of Christ. And we're awaiting that time. And so we fast as a way of longing for and cultivating an anticipation and cultivating an an awareness of his coming on earth as he is in heaven. And so we fast because we long to experience that fullness We fast because we long for the brokenness that we see in our culture and in our world to be fully healed as well. We long for things like prejudice and injustice and greed and exploitation and sex trafficking and all of the things we could point to, the long list of things we could point to and say, this does not align with God's design for our world. This is not how God has designed us to live. This is flying in the face of of what is actually good for humans. And we see all of that and we long for that to be made new. We long for all of that to be submitted to the rule and to the reign of Jesus. And so we fast as a way of longing for and expressing our desire for the kingdom of God to come on earth as it is in heaven. And so, yes, we ought to fast in the absence of Jesus. Because fasting is one of the ways that we increase our longing to be with him. And so this is such an important spiritual practice and spiritual rhythm for us. I don't claim to be an expert on fasting, so I'm not going to pretend to be. Um, but here's one thing I do know. I've, I've done enough fasting to know this, that you will pray different when your stomach is empty. If you've ever fasted, <laughs> uh, you know what I'm talking about. You will pray different when your stomach is empty. Because what happens is all of a sudden it's like, yeah, there's these, these desires, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm praying, I'm, you know, I'm expressing my longing for God to do this or do that. 
uh, those longings and that prayer is uh, assisted by a stomach that's rumbling. When your stomach is churning and when you're saying, oh man, I just wish I could have something to eat right now. And there's the longing that you have for food and physical nourishment that will change the way that you pray. Because when you choose to fast and choose to pray during when you fast, all of a sudden, the longing that you have for physical food and nourishment and, you know, the thing that you know is waiting for you when your fasting time is over, you can turn that into a prayer and say, God, in the same way, I so long for this food. I so long for this uh, need to be met, this nourishment. But in an even greater way, I long to be in your presence face to face. I long for all the areas of my life to be submitted unto, you, unto your leadership and under your lordship and to be conformed into the image of Christ. I long for all the areas of our society to be brought under the authority of Christ. And so fasting is a way, you know, our, our physical bodies, God has given us these for a reason. And, and there's, a, there's a link between our physical bodies and our, uh, our spirituality. And the, the aching and the longing and the hunger of our physical bodies is something that helps us pray for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. And so what I want to encourage you with this morning is to choose a six to eight hour period this week where you will choose to fast. Now, we in the modern West, we tend to, we're like, I'm going to fast from social media. I'm going to fast from watching TV or, you know, looking at the news, whatever. And like, that's cool, Okay. Um, Jesus didn't tell his disciples to fast from social media. (laughs) And it's not because they didn't have social media. Like the way you fasted in the first century and in like all of history until modern America was you fasted from food, (laughs) right? Right? So uh, it's important to fast from those other things. I'm not saying that's unimportant. I'm just saying uh, maybe just stick to like what the church has done for like centuries and fast from actual food. And just choose a, a six to eight hour period, not while you're sleeping, Just to put that out there, it doesn't count when you're like, I ate a midnight snack and then I slept in and wow, I'm done fasting. It's not how it works. Uh, You got to choose a period while you're awake and choose to intentionally and strategically not eat. And what I want to just ask you to do is just do it and, and, and just experience it, okay? Just see what it feels like and maybe take some notes of like, this is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm experiencing. This is how this maybe helped me today. This is how I realized I'm really hangry and I'm unbearable to be around when I don't have food. And that's a whole different thing, right? <laughs> uh, but what I want is for uh, just to encourage you to do a six or eight hour fast sometime this week. And then during our open mic time next week, what I want to do is hear from a couple of you who have had the chance to do it and just hear what was your experience like? How did that go for you? And what did you learn? And what can we learn from maybe the rest of you who have tried that? So uh, I want to just encourage you to do that this week. And we get now to come to the communion table where we get, where we get to remember and celebrate uh, that the salvation that we have hoped for and longed for has actually come in the person of Jesus. And so we get to come today and celebrate that we get to receive the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. And we get to remember Uh, that he is our bridegroom, that he is the one who has laid down his life to purchase our salvation and our deliverance. And we get to partake of the communion table and eating the the, the bread and the juice in a way, it's a way of longing. It's a way of cultivating a longing where we come and we're like, yeah, it's bread and juice. And I long to be able to be in the presence of the one who the bread and the juice represents. And so as we come to the communion table today, I want to invite you to take just a few moments of silent confession and reflection.